This is UX Radio. Here are your hosts, Laura Federoff and Chris Chandler. Today's guest is Ha Fan. She has had over 20 years of experience in UX. Her last notable UX role was Principal UX Designer at GoPro, where she worked on novel experiences for storytelling in 2D and 360 video, earning multiple patents. Currently, Ha is the Director of Discovery Products at Pluralsight, where she leads multiple product teams to build search, browse, recommendations, and other discovery experiences. How do you go from storytelling experiences at a camera company to discovery products at an e-learning company, you ask? Well, they're all products powered by machine learning and started from nothing. You can say that Ha is addicted to building something from nothing. I can almost guarantee you'll be inspired by this conversation with Ha. Hi, and welcome to UX Radio. This is Laura Federoff. And I'm Chris Chandler. And I'm very excited today to welcome Ha Fan, the director of Discovery Products at Pluralsight, to UX Radio today. Welcome, Ha. Hi, Chris. Hi, Laura. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for uh, being on the show. It's really great to talk to you today. Uh, we've known each other for a little while, uh, and I'm wondering if you could share, and anybody who is anybody on the internet knows you by your Twitter feed. I think you're, you're Twitter famous in our industry, richly deserved. And anybody who wants to check you out at HP Daily Rant should, because it's amazing and a quality feed. Here's my main question to open up. We want to know how you got to where you are. Tell us a little bit about your career. Tell us the story. How did you end up at Pluralsight? Good Lord, that would take me like two weeks. I'm super old. Um, I'll just give some highlights. I've been doing this for multiple decades. I won't say how many, but um, yeah, I've done this a long, long time. I, I would say that the thing that differentiates me from UX practitioners today is that, I don't know about you, Chris, but when I was going to school, there was no UX program. There was no not cognitive science or anything like that. So I was an art student and my first tech job was working at a company that built educational software, kind of like K-12 stuff. We built little gamelets. I'm not sure if you guys remember, but in the 90s, there used to be these devices like the Pixar, you know, like the little devices before the iPad where you put these cartridges inside these devices and you play little games and then you learn, like, for example, addition or spelling. So I did a bunch of those things. I did like a very, very odd parents game. And then I worked on a, a bunch of learning management systems with a number of years I did that. And then I kind of got out of the industry. Uh, you look at my LinkedIn profile, there's like this gap. And um, I took a number of years off. I was a consultant for a long time because I was raising my son. So uh, I have a lot of experience working as a consultant. And um, when you're a consultant, you have kind of a mercenary attitude. It's like, you know, if you have a bad client, you think this is temporary. I'm not going to be married to you for a long time, you know. So I think, you know, I've had such a variety of experience. I also worked in an agency so I know how to bid projects. I know how to, I know how to scope projects. I know how to manage client expectations. You know, just uh, thinking about the outcome in a scenario where you're trying to you're trying to land the next deal for the agency, right? So that's a that's not a UX mindset, but it's more of a business mindset. So I've done a lot of different things, and I think all of the experience I've had 
informs me what not to do. <laughs> so, so, you know, like when you go on online, you see people writing about their case studies, about what makes this successful. And I, I always say that I failed a lot. I failed a lot at a lot of different things or there are things that I've actually been successful at, but I learned that those are the things I don't want to do. Like I have a boss who used to tell me that be careful about being good at something you don't like to do. <laughs> so I always keep that in mind. But anyway, that's a snapshot of my career. I've done a little bit of everything. And somehow by accident, it was never planned. I arrived here. Uh, I, I'm not one of those people who said, okay, by this age, you need to be this title. Uh, I'm, I really am not about uh, careers and destination. So uh, where I am today, it's purely by accident. Well, I wow. think a lot of us have that same story. It's interesting you talk about uh, the failing fast. We, Chris and I talk about that all the time. And it does seem like some of the painful lessons we learned just make us stronger leaders. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think so. I think I've worked for a lot of, you know, companies that had toxic culture. So uh, I learned pretty quickly how to uh, build a colony inside a company so that you're protected from that, or you can still make an impact. So yes, I would say that, I think the hard thing for UX is that we're always the ones who people look at, or when people say a product didn't work out or failed, they always talk about the UX of it first because it's a visible part or it's a part they experience. But we we really don't have any control over that. It's like this fallacy, this myth that the UX is terrible, so the product failed. But really, there's a lot of, contributing factors to the UX, right? Like, I feel like the reason why I could do good UX today is because I'm a leader. I could control the pieces of the puzzle. It's funny, we had this conversation the other day. Um, somebody said, uh, somebody talked about like successful product and I said, I never want to be like a conqueror. Um, there's a joke with, between me and my friends where I was like, you know, I go from company to company hoping to escape conquer. Because I'm like, I do not want to click eight times to, to enter in an expense, you know. And uh, every company I go to, I said, God, I hope they're not using Conquer. And of course, they're using Conquer. And it's the most, you know, one of the most successful products because, you know, their business model is entrenchment. You're entrenched, you're stuck. So, yeah. So anyway, that that's how I feel about uh, UX. I feel like identify most strongly as a UX designer, even though my title is no longer a UX designer and I care so much about UX, but there's so many things that are not within our control to build a good user experience. Yeah, that's so true. It's one of the things that I know is always surprising to recent graduates. Now that there are programs for UX designers, right? And they like, it's always such a rude awakening for a junior UX designer to realize that UX designers don't rule the world. That, that when they get out in the world, they're going to have to work with product managers and the marketing team and the sales team and the developers and the, and the, and the product managers. And it's just that whole big enmeshment of roles. Um, I love that perspective. And, and I think that's true of a lot of us that we are UX designers at heart and care passionately about UX. But to be able to find the role where you can actually provide space for the UX to happen is really, I think, a challenge for many of us in this side of their career. One of the things you mentioned was that you feel like you've really learned about being a leader in your current role. And I'm, I'm curious about that. 
as someone who also would like to be a better leader? Yeah, so there's something you should know about me is I'm a very hesitant leader. I don't see myself as a leader for quite some time. Um, when I'm given, when people ask me to be a leader, sometimes I turn it down because I I just don't think that, you know, like when you think of a leader, you think of, sorry to say, but you always, I always think of a white dude, okay? I think of a white dude. And I, I just don't feel like I'll never be that person. I'll never have that commanding presence. Uh, you know, whatever that story is in terms of, you know, the story, there's, there's, there's this prominent story that's told in all of the, you know, in all the tech startups and all of the tech origin stories, right? And then the leader is never an Asian woman. And uh, so I, I always feel like I couldn't command that respect for a long time. I just felt like I could be a really effective individual contributor, but I never saw myself as a leader for a long, long time. And also, like, throughout my career, all the leaders I had were just major assholes. There's this idea that you have to be an asshole to make things work. Like, to, to you have to be an asshole to get the troops in line. You have to be an asshole to be able to make an impact and make the hard choices, right? Uh, you hear that story. And I think I can never be that because I, I have a I have a set of guiding principles. Uh, so this is actually what I do to, to kind of protect myself uh, because I believe so much in integrity. So, you know, a lot of times you have to make bad choices because you're told to or because you know, that's what my boss tells me to do, but I don't do it. I get fired, right? There, that, that's like the bottom line. You can fight as much as you want, but that at some point you're gonna get fired. That's always a thing. So for a number of years, when I was an individual contributor, I would always look for another job. Like no matter how happy I am at a job, I always uh, had a had a plan B. I always had enough money to leave at any time, or I always had another. I always stay connected with people, so if I quit, I can find a job at any time. So that if Somebody asked me to make a, make a hard choice, or if they did something that I disagree with, I can say I'm out the door. And uh, another thing I used to do was that I used to have a desk that uh, didn't have any of my personal artifacts on it, so I could, could walk away from the job at any time. Anyway, so the reason why I tell you that story is that it's part of my uh, thinking that I'm never going to be a good leader. Uh, I, I can't see myself as a good leader. So when I came to Pluralsight, I was originally a product manager. That's another story altogether of how, how I got into product. But uh, I felt like I had to take on the director role so that I could scale my team, so that I could enable my team to do what they need to do and protect them from noise. So I didn't take that role on happily because I like to be in the trenches and do the work. But another reason why I took on that role was because at Pluralsight, the number one gift that Pluralsight gave me was that Pluralsight has a lot of empathetic leaders. And they're just the nicest people you ever met. Like, I didn't believe it when I first came, when I encountered these people. I was like, that can't be real. Like, these people can't be that nice. You know, when I came to Pluralsight, I actually said to my friend that, uh, I'm probably a secret asshole in the product organization because everyone is just so nice. It can't be that nice, right? So just watching these leaders uh, lead with such empathy really made me feel like I could do that. I could, you know, I could be a leader and um, I would, you know, I wouldn't have to sell out on any of my guiding principles. I could 
uh, be a servant and an advocate for my people. I could fight for what's right. And um, I could promote, you know, psychological safety in my organization. And, you know, it's been great. It's been working exactly the way, you know, I hoped it would work. I have a great team. So, yeah, so that's what Pluralsight has given me. It's made me feel like I could be a leader in my own terms. That's amazing. And so how did you establish these guiding principles? I feel like I've always had it. Just now being a good human, right? Uh, I feel like I could defend anything if I know the, my whys. Like I know why I do, I'm doing it. Uh, so before I make any decisions, I, I think a lot about, you know, what are the guiding principles around this problem? Just so that we have a point of view. We don't know if it's right, but we're going to set a precedence to say we think that we're going to contain it to these guiding principles. And it's really good product development as well. And so uh, I think that in terms of in terms of guiding principle, people ask me about what a guiding principle is. Uh, so let's start there. A guiding principle is um, it could be values related. So for example, servant lead. You know, there's guiding principle under like servant leadership. Uh, advocacy for me is a big one. Um, basically, for me, it's really hard to advocate for myself because I think I'm being selfish or I have you know, I don't deserve it. So I go through all these, my demons in terms of how I can't advocate for myself. But uh, it's very easy to advocate for other people. Um, so you think about like, what are the key things? What are the key things that, that help you to create the impact that you want? Or what are the key things that will help you uh, make decisions quickly and make trade-offs, right? So I will never trade off my team's uh, psychological safety for something else. Or for example, we were talking about roadmap and I was like, I would never commit to a fixed roadmap, a fixed timeline with a fixed you know, deliverable. So I could say that I have a level of confidence to deliver something within a certain timeline because I know enough about it. So those are kind of things that I try to write out so that when I encounter that, I can say, this is, you know, so it enables me to, to have a clear position of my approach moving forward. And then people can rely on it consistently. Like the how will never, my team would tell you that how will never uh, commit to a, to a deadline or with a fixed timeline, with a fixed, you know, scope. So they, they know that, right? So I hope that answers your question. It's a great yes. answer. I wonder if you could share some examples of guiding principles that you use for products. Uh, yeah, so uh, I learned this actually from at GoPro. I didn't know that that was what it was, but when when the product manager I worked with at the time did this, it it kind of created a spark, right? Uh, so we were working on this R&D project, and we were building this this machine assisted video editing uh, tool, right? And the cool thing about this is that it wasn't it wasn't based on like you selecting the beginning and end of a clip, so you weren't managing time. You were kind of like just saying going through the video and saying, this is a moment, this is a moment, and this is a moment. And somehow the tool just concatenate these things and build like a, a short video that is synced to music immediately within like five minutes, right? So when we were going through this, uh, we started to think about like, what are, the, what are the key points that we can make that would help the team make decisions? Uh, so we talked about like, this is, this is about... Um, it's about being lightweight, right? So 
whatever decision you, you make, you want to make sure that this tool is lightweight. Because it, if you make it complex, it's very easy to make a, a, a solution complex. You're starting to add more features to it over time. So lightweight was a guiding principle. So anytime when we think of features, go, does this feel lightweight? Another thing we talked about was a moment over time. So you're just going through and making marks about moment. As soon as you introduce the concept of like too much tuning and editing with time, like it begins at this point, that point, you're starting to do math in your head and then the experience stops being magical and playful. So those, those two are kind of guiding principles. In terms of working tactically, sometimes uh, there are a couple of guiding principles that I give my designer all the time at the beginning of the process. So when you're at the beginning of the process and you're not going to get to the ultimate beautiful, awesome thing right away, so you're making small bets. So I always say uh, solve for the immediate problem, but architect for flexibility. So that you know you're you're making you're being nimble. So that over time you needed to use that pattern for a long time, it will still work for many different use cases. And later on, when you reach a point where you feel good about the experience, you can always go back and tune it. Uh, so that's a guiding principle I use time over time. I always, every new designer who works with me will hear me say that. That's wonderful. I think it really helps to steer the team in the right direction. I would love to just kind of change the topic a little bit and dig into your experience at Plural Site. It sounds like you're having such a great experience there. And I love that you have talked about search and how the one of the biggest problems is information architecture. So I'd love to hear your uh, perspective on that and how you're approaching it. Um, I always tell people that search was the product that I didn't really ask for, but it was product I really needed. When I first came to Plurisa, I was hired to be the product manager for uh, the AI. And it was really broad because I don't think people understood like what the AI is supposed to do because they didn't really have a handle on the data that's required, right? To to have to build a really good AI experience or or figure out like what your AI is supposed to do. So when I first came to Pluralsight, I was hired to be the PM for AI. And at the time, I think there was this uh, this vision, but not a clear understanding of where our data is at. And you really have to have a data excellence and data strategy to be able to drive like a, an AI strategy. Um, so I understood some of that since I worked so much with machine learning at, at GoPro before. So I did a lot of research, but I wanted to understand when I first came to Florida, I wanted to understand like, what is the user's mental model and how is that currently captured in the system? Like what are the, how are those behaviors and data points captured in the system? How is the content architected? So I had like a, I did a ton of research and have a broad understanding of that. And then I thought, if I understood that, then I could kind of say what I want the AI to do. So when I started doing that, I, I realized that a lot of the, you know, the, a lot of starting point in, in the product begins with search. And that's common. Um, a lot of people start their journey on a product on search. Um, and I saw there was a huge opportunity there. And at that time, I think, our platform is scaling. And so uh, I realized that no one's really focusing on search at a time and so many of the problems were on uh, search. And if I could work on search, I could understand uh, what the some of the key user behaviors and how the data points connect really. 
it was just a bunch of questions for me that I needed to answer. And once I start asking these questions, I can't stop. Uh, and so I actually asked my boss at the time to put me on search. And at that point, there was no team assigned to search. In most people's minds, search was already done at that point because there was a UI and then you can type things in and then return results. I blame but, Google. I blame yeah, Google yeah. for that, right? We're all bored with search now. Yeah, but we were so far from that at that time. I feel like I understood at that point that the way that search was then, it couldn't scale. And so um, I asked to be put on search and it took me six months to get a couple of engineers to be assigned to search. So that was my journey of building that team from scratch. Engineers who joined had never worked on search before. They had never worked on Elasticsearch. They didn't, you know, it was just working on search is really, really hard. Like I feel like it's the hardest thing I ever worked on. So I felt like that was our, actually our advantage because none of us knew any better. We had, we didn't feel, know that, we knew that we were dumb. Like we knew that we didn't know what the heck we were doing, but we none of us felt like we knew better than the other person. Like there was no engineer that came in and said, I've built search before and this is how it should be. There was nobody who did that. Everybody was like, we have no idea what we're doing. <laughs> so, but I think that the, the main thing that I loved about working on search and that it taught me so much is that when you build other products, you build a UI, you arrive at some experience and then you test it and then people use it and you click through things and it's done. You know, it's like it worked the way we thought it was going to work, right or wrong, it worked. In search, it's like you can build a UI and you can return search result and it can be completely wrong. And the only way that you would know that it's right or wrong is to be able to define the right metric to say that this is relevant. And the way I explain it to my team is that when you have a single metric to say that if the metric moves, if this metric moves, that means it's getting better. That means this is right. So there's, there's a sort of truth to that. There's no opinion or anything. Everybody's aligned around the single measurement, around a data point that, ha that is free of opinion. There's opinions in how you define that measurement, but when you agree that that's the measurement, it's a kind of truth and it's very freeing. It also allows you to think about everything experimentally and that there's this continuum of right. So I don't know how to explain it, but it was, it changed how I thought about, you know, how to work. It thought, changed how I thought about how I approach products. And it changed how I thought about how I work with engineers. So the whole team has to own the UX. The whole team asks questions about the UX. And I felt like that is how UX needed to be done. You know, I, I felt like this, this environment that we built, this culture we built where engineers are involved at the very beginning, uh, you know, figuring things out and then, you know, product and design also is doing their own explorations and we come together tinkering, not knowing where we're going to get to. It's, it's just, a, it's just very, a very pure experience, I feel. And it's what I strive to build in every team uh, that I work with. I had that kernel of a thing when I worked on the R&D team 
at GoPro. And I, when I came to Pluralsight, I wanted to recreate it, but I did. I didn't think I could. And I think I did in a sense. I created a better, a different team. It was a good team, but you know, people are people. People are different. So I think like the spirit of it was right. But it's what I strive to do uh, all the time. I'd love to know more about so many things that you just said there, by the way. Uh, I could follow up many different ways, but I want to ask you about another thing that you had mentioned to me earlier about how some of your earlier experiences have led to sort of storytelling being a foundation to how you approach things. And I'm really curious if you could tell us more about that and how storytelling works into your approach and and how you use it. The storytelling is very personal to me. Uh, If you don't know, I don't think many people know this about me. Uh, My father is a writer. Uh, He's a very accomplished writer. He... There's a joke in my family where he's always hoped that I would become a writer. So when he comes to my house, this is years ago, he'll come over because I, I have this half-written book uh, and he knows about it. He'll come over and he'll say, you know, when, I'm at, when I was your age, I was already really famous. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I want to tell him, I say, well, dad, I have, like, I have a Twitter feed that has like 8,000 followers. I don't think that means anything to him. Uh, and I think, you know, that's really, I really don't take that very seriously. <laughs> But um, I don't know how many years it was ago, but I uh, I've all, I think I identify very strongly with being a writer. Is how I think. And maybe it was a decade ago. I won a I won a writing contest for a short story. I, I forgot like what the uh, organization was, but uh, I did it because I wanted my uh, to prove to my friend I was terrible. Because my friend keeps saying, you know, you need to write a book. And I'm like, I'm really terrible. And I have this thing that I have partially written. She's like, well, you should you know, submit it to this thing. And I submitted it and I won. <laughs> so, uh, so I was supposed to take that on further, but I didn't. But to go back to your thing about storytelling, another way that I approach product development is I, I was at the startup right after I left GoPro. And um this product manager of mine, my friend, his name is Jovan Matias. He's like one of the most brilliant people I ever worked with. But one of the things that we used to do is we used to write mission statements uh, in the ideation process uh, as a way to get to the guiding principle, as a way to kind of focus the design. So, for example, at the time we were working on, uh, you know, the idea of technology for a smart home. And I just came in. I was like, I have no idea why you hired me and I don't know what I'm building here. <laughs> so I asked him, I said, what's the story? What's the story for, for this product? And he's like, the story is that, uh, you know, you're in this house and the butler has no arms. And that, that became a thing, like a butler has no arms, right? So a lot of times we, we start building a product, I would write down like these mission statements and they're just temporary, but it gives me a way to ground myself, you know, to say, what, what do I need to do to make this story true? The other thing that we used to do is we know when I was working at with Joven at GoPro and, and we were trying to build this new experience for uh, storytelling, this editing, video editing experience. And um, we would coin these phrases when we were presenting the research. And uh, it seems like we were being very, uh, I don't know how it's like organic or spontaneous, but we planned it. So we would say things like when we were describing how we were using this music template that was synced to the to you know the the video clips i would say 
Well, yeah, you know, because because music, music is the uh, what did I say? It was something like, oh, music is the current that carries the story. And um, I I did it kind of spontaneously, but it felt like it was in the moment and people remember it. And to this day, my friend still remembers it. He's like, are you going to say that thing again where music is the current that carries the story? <laughs> but, uh, but we used to coin these phrases in our presentation. And it's like, it's one of those things where when you say it, you understand the product immediately. But you do it in a way where it feels spontaneous so that when people, after people attend the, the presentation, they always remember that. And they'll say it again. And they think that they invented it. And that's, the, <laughs> and that's really the trick. Then the story, you know, continues to be retold, right? It doesn't need to be this long thing. It's a narrative that helps you focus on what the product is about. So I learned that at GoPro and, you know, it's kind of weird that GoPro is it's all about storytelling. And then we, you know, rolled in this concept of how, you know, storytelling helps us to, to build a product also. But I've carried that with me every single time. When every, every time I do something, I think of like, what is the story here? And then I try to write that one sentence and I'll, I'll stay. And sometimes I write on my whiteboard in the back just so that I, I'll see like, is this, is this really stick? Can I carry this through? And if, if it does, then I will, you know, also keep it in my strategy deck. But anyway, that's the, uh, that's the uh, vein of storytelling and something I've kept practicing time over time and fine tuning. Well, it sounds like you're definitely implementing storytelling in your product design, but it seems like also you're doing that on your Twitter feed as well. You know, if you can think of your Twitter feed as a story and what I love about your Twitter is that you take a strong point of view on things and it sort of shows the values that you carry. Do you feel like you're telling a story on Twitter? Yeah, so I have a lot of goals when I use Twitter. Um, everybody, I get a lot of people who DM me and tell me how great it is and how they've learned a lot from following me on Twitter. I also get people who want to pay me to write their own Twitter feed. But I tell them, you know, it doesn't work like that. I really don't uh, go on Twitter and think, oh, today I'm going to teach people something. Or I don't think about, like, you know, I'm trying. I'm not trying to, like, build my brand or anything like that. It's My Twitter feed actually started out as uh, a way for me to rant, hence the uh, handle HP Daily Rant. I used to say that don't expect too much from a Twitter feed with the handle uh, Daily Rant in it. But uh, it started out as uh, a way for me to rant daily about startup life because I used to work at the startup. And there's also so many ridiculous stories every single day that came up. But over time, what happens is that I change jobs. And with each job, I would report. It's like my way of talking to myself. It's almost like a diary post of what's happening or things I'm trying to figure out. Sometimes when I encounter problems, I have a muse. And some people don't know they're my muse, obviously. It could be like a bad boss is my muse, or it could be like inspirational people. Sometimes it's a good muse and sometimes it's a bad muse, but I'm speaking directly to those people. They don't know it, but I am. So yeah, so it's like me reporting from the field. That's actually what uh, Christian Crumlish, I talked to Christian a couple of weeks ago, and he said that, 
you say things that other people never say. It's like you're reporting from the field. And I said, yeah, because sometimes I'm writing it immediately after it happens. So my engineers know this too. <laughs> They're like, occasionally we got to check out high speed to see what she's really saying about us because we know that <laughs> we know that this happens and she's going to report on it <laughs> on Twitter. So, so that's kind of where, you know, the, the rant comes from. It's actually a true diary of what's happening in my uh, daily work life. Nice. Great reading. All right. Now here's a question that we like to ask uh, all the guests on New York's radio, which is what, what would you like your legacy to be? That's a really hard question because I feel like I've largely sold out. Uh, you know what I'm saying? Like this, I feel like if you ask me at 20, one year old, my 21 year old self, what I would want to do, uh, it's not this. So I've asked myself that recently. And I think, I don't think it's this. I've done a lot of great things. You know, I feel like I've been, let me rephrase that. I don't think what I'm doing is great. I think lately I started to think that my legacy would be that I build good teams. I haven't done it long enough to say that I'm an expert at it or anything. I just think that people who work with me can reliably know that I have their back and that I will uh, advocate for them to the best of my ability. But if my 21-year-old self would see me today, she would say that I've sold out. <laughs> You're too humble, much too humble, I think. Mainly because I think I, I I was an art student and at 21, I thought of becoming a Buddhist monk at one point. So from that point of view, I feel like I've sold out. I don't feel bad about it because that's just how life works. But, you know, like everybody has, there's a term in Buddhism that it's about, it's called suchness. And suchness is like, it's like, that, that's the core of who you are without all the external stuff. It's like, and I don't think that this is who I am at my core. I think it's, there's parts of it where I, I, I like research and I like chasing things and I like to connect the dots. So I'm, I'm at my core a thinker uh, and a philosopher. And I think, I think that uh, I get to do some of that in my job, but, you know, left to my own devices without having to make a living and worrying, you know, taking care of people. I would I do that? I don't know if I would do that. It's like a, I think some, who who asked me this question recently? I said that I take my job very seriously, but also not seriously at all. Like I see myself as as a serious puzzle solver. <laughs> like I have fun solving the puzzle. Puzzle is a really hard puzzle, and I really like the puzzle. But at the end of the day, I can leave the puzzle. Right. You did talk about how your teams come together and we're working much better together after you were sort of diving deep into search. I'm curious as you think about teams who are working in silos and like, what would your advice to them be to work closer together as a, a great team? I think the thing that most teams and most people uh, are missing is that they ask very poor questions and they have to get the question right before they they can come up with good solutions and the reason why if you 
focus on the right questions, then you can actually detach your ego from it and and stand on each other's shoulder to ask better questions. So if you say, for example, you and I get together and we decide that we don't know anything about building a wall, but I'm going to come over to your house one day and figure out how we're going to build a wall because you want to you want to do this thing to your house. So we're going to research it together and then we're going to you know just uh, figure it out, right? So. You know, you, you're going to go research and do your thing. We go, hi, I read this thing. You start with the framing, blah, blah. And I would say, well, you know, where, what kind of wood do we need? And how many, you know, you know, what's the size? And then how many pieces do we do? There's all these questions. So then you just come together because of the questions. So I think that that's where I would start is that you would start with just asking really question, good questions and then ask why you're asking those questions. And look, you know, focus on the problem and not so much on the solution right away. Then everything else kind of melts away. Once you have that, you have the core culture of how you work together. You build trust. You articulate, you know, you know how to articulate good questions. You have, you know how to prove yourself wrong. Because if you and I, Lara, built the wall wrong, it would hold up anything, right? And then that's okay, too, because then we did it. And we go, well, that sucks. Well, let's do it again. <laughs> uh, so... So I think that that's the number one thing. People kind of talk about operations and then, you know, process. But really, it's really about, it's always about the human factor, right? How we treat each other, how we work together, how we ask good questions, and how we help each other become successful. But we don't do that by going to a workshop. We just do it because we help each other. That's a wonderful answer. Thank you so much. And thank you for joining us on today's show. Thank you so much. It was so great talking to you both. UX Radio is produced by Laura Federoff and Chris Chandler. If you want more UX Radio, you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and Google Play or go to ux-radio.com where you'll find podcasts, resources, and more. This episode is brought to you by Philosophy. Philosophy helps entrepreneurs and organizations validate and develop their promising ideas through agile design, rapid prototyping, and software craftsmanship. To learn more, visit philosophy.is.